Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16a, a continuation of Jesus' trial, if one can even call it that. Despite the fact that Pilate repeatedly says he finds no charge against Jesus, the machinery of this human penal system is now in motion, and Pilate seems unwilling to stop it. We pull out our hair, watching the web of forces that seem to hold sway over the characters, both the religious authorities and the empire's authorities, many of which are based in fear, and none of which are based in speaking and acting upon what one actually believes to be true. And we see pretty clearly that indeed the empire would lose its power if it could not hold the fear of death over its people. Good heavens, humans are a disaster. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you today? I am doing okay. Good. We are getting to the point in the gospel where uh, it 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 it. This is a sad story for me to yeah. read, Bobby. <laughs> and I was talking to my husband about it last night, and I said something like, "This is this is just a heart wrenching story, especially if you if you don't you don't get the resurrection. Like if yeah. you read this as a Jewish person, and that doesn't." Yeah. That you know, like it just it just is is heart wrenching. And you know what he compared it to? I cannot imagine. One of your favorite, I think, cultural moments. It's a friends episode. <laughs> Do you remember the friends episode where Phoebe starts watching It's a Wonderful Life? Oh yes. And says, This is the most tragic, horrible movie ever, and she won't watch the end yeah. of it. And people keep telling her, like, it's not, but you have to watch the end of it. That's what he compared my problem to. So just like if you stop before the end, it's going to be terrible. You got to keep watching. Yeah. And I was like, well, it's not that I'm not going to read the end, but like it, you know, yeah. different truth claims here. My favorite thing about that Friends episode is like before that, the reason she she does that is because you remember she watches like old Yeller and all these like films oh, that have yeah. like terrible endings, but her mom always turned them off before they ended. So she's like, old yeller, what a sweet story about a dog. And then she watches yes. it and she's like, oh my God, what is yeah. happening? And so then when she watches that It's a Wonderful Life, she she turns it off because it's so terrible. She didn't want to see how it ends. She doesn't want to see the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're in we're in that part of the story. I will say, I mean, I've I think we've said I've said this probably the last two weeks or three weeks in a row, but this narrative lectionary cycle is really lingering over the yeah. trial and crucifixion of Jesus in a way that the other years prior to this one have not done. And I, like, it is really kind of an excruciating story to sit through at this yes. pace. I, yes. I'm there with you, even though I I do get the resurrection and, like, I have seen the end of the movie and I, and I do know what happens. It's still, like, even, like, when you, 
even when you know that that's what's coming or that's your belief system, that that's what's coming, watching this unfold and the, the tragedy, I mean, for Jesus, but also for the human It's just for the whole, it's a, yeah. It's yeah. rough. It is, is very rough. rough. Yes. And I imagine for people who are leading congregations, this is, it, it is, it's rough yeah. to spend all these weeks in this time. Yeah. I feel for you, people. Yeah. When I was growing up, we, you know, I, I, we just skipped from the Last Supper on Monday, Thursday to Easter. <laughs> like I grew up without ever really, like you, you knew there had to have been a crucifixion yeah. in order to get to the resurrection, but we never really talked about it. It was a perfunctory crucifixion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, part of me is grateful for that because like the resurrection is the part of the story that is inspiring the crucifixion, yeah. though, like it makes, if you skip the crucifixion, it makes the, the reality of the resurrection a little cheap. It's like Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace. It's, it's kind of like that. If you yeah. get resurrection without having to wade through what comes before resurrection but man, it is, it is, it is painful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep watching Phoebe. And he- <laughs> <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So today we are in John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16a, the first part of verse 16. We left off, you know, just the verse before this, so... Yeah. There's there's nothing I think we really need to fill in here. Are there any comments you want to offer before we dive in? No, I mean, the only thing, just if you have not listened to the previous two episodes, Jesus mm. has been on trial for two episodes. First, he was under trial by Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. Last week, then, he start, began his trial with Pilate, which ended with the release of Barabbas. Mm-hmm. And so this week's text is picking up right in the middle of that. Jesus is still being examined by Pilate. So we've been, yeah, the trial's been going on now. This is the third week of of the trial. Yeah, yeah, yes. And it seems important to my reading of the text to pull out that Pilate has has done this, at least initial examination, and has has said, I find no case against him. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. But the system is what it is, and, and Jesus is still, still set to be punished, even though Pilate has no sees no ground for it. Yeah. That is an interesting framework just to think about this text, and we'll have to keep coming back to it. But, you know, this text is is at least in part about the miscarriage of justice in human justice systems. Yes. And that you just set that up very nicely about everybody knows he's innocent, or at least, maybe that's not exactly fair, but Pilate has determined that he's innocent, and yet Pilate's going to end up executing him anyway. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing happens still yet again. Yes. Yep. So we are picking up then, I'm reading from the NRSV, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. I almost suggested that we should— I I almost wanted to stop after the very first verse Mm. because when I read it, just knowing that we're coming from this scene where Pilate just said, I find no case against him. Don't you want to release him? You get to choose. And the, I don't know how they're described here, the religious authorities, the Jews, they use various sort of descriptions. The, The people who had brought Jesus to Pilate in the first place say, no, let the other guy go. Right. And then immediately, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. It just, it's so sad. Why is he, why, why is he doing this? Yeah, that's such a good question, Amy. And, you know, there's a couple of arguments about it. One is that the Romans were known to use flogging and other forms of torture during a trial in order to get confessions out of people. Yeah. Especially people who were non-citizens, like most of the people of Judea, including Jesus, were non, not Roman citizens. And so, you know, one way of reading it is that Pilate is using every means at his disposal to get Jesus to confess to something. To something. Another way of reading it, which I think is also reasonable, is that Pilate is cruel and Jesus is not an important person. And so Pilate is just showing the power that he has to be cruel to non-persons. I don't know if those are the only two or if there's another way of reading it. Where, Where do you connect in with that? I mean, I think the only other possibility that comes to my mind is, you know, the idea that you sort of suggested before in some ways, this general idea of how justice systems work. That it's just like once you're on, you're like on this automatic sidewalk. Yeah. And the next thing that happens on that sidewalk is flogging. And yeah. so it just, that's just what happens because you weren't pulled off of it, even though it's just, it's hard for me to imagine. This is a part of why the text is so excruciating. Like, I know humans are a disaster. I know that. Mm. But this level of like, Pilate just said he finds no case against him. How do you then turn around and order a flogging? Like, how can you care that little or, I don't, diminish someone's humanity to the, it is is mind-blowing to me. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, Amy, I, I appreciate your lingering over this. And I mean, to me, there's a real, like, human beings are a disaster, I think, as a, Good framing for this Good text. general statement, yeah. <laughs> and when you think about justice systems and, you know, once, I, I like the way that you said that, once someone kind of enters into the system, they're on a moving sidewalk that just moves the way it moves. And they're not, I mean, this, how could he care so little, I think is the right question. To which one answer might be, I mean, Jesus is now a prisoner and yeah. Pilate the justice system, however you want to think about that, doesn't see prisoners as persons. And so the cruelty doesn't really have any meaning within that system. It's just yeah. you do the next you do the next thing. It doesn't really matter if the trial has been unfair or biased or, or whatever. Yeah. 
I, I read this text very much, or I think a, a useful reading of this text is to ex, to expose exactly the cruelty of human systems and the degree to which human beings, especially those in positions where their power is at stake, are a disaster. Mm-hmm. And Pilate is very much exemplifying that right here. Yeah. And it does not get better. <laughs> it does not. It does not get better. It does not get better from there. Amy, you raised the you you said the Jewish leaders or the religious leaders or the Jews are whoever <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. And I, you know, like I think that John, we've talked about this before. John yeah. is being very imprecise here in ways that I think are deeply problematic. The Common English Bible actually translates the Jewish leaders throughout this text, yeah. which I think. Is it's actually not in the Greek, like those words are not in the Greek, but that's what seems to be in view here is that these are the Pharisees and their deputies, whatever that means exactly. But people, religious people in authority who are protecting their traditions, trying to keep their the Romans happy, trying to preserve the peace, however you want to frame it. Like there's there's still a lot to work out there, but I think we very much should read these as the religious leaders mm-hmm. who in this case are Jewish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And definitely not read this. Uh, the NRSV, like I get why they translated it, the Jews. Yeah. I mean, that's the way right. John wrote it. Right. But it's a problem, I think, to read yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, last night I was at a story slam for my congregation and people were sharing stories of moments in their lives that really shaped them, shaped their beliefs in the world. And someone told a story of, you know, they this person was living in Alabama. There were, you know, very, very few Jews where they were living, small town, really lovely people, close friends, good neighbors. And they they had the occasion to go to church once with neighbors of theirs who were, you know, very kind and loving people. They were very good friends. And there was a reading from the Gospel of John, and, and the story was about uh, this member of my congregation who said she just felt— herself getting hotter and hotter, like she could feel heat like emanating from her body. And and the reason I bring this up is that she said specifically like, look, I know these texts happened in a historical context. I know there was a deep conflict within the community. And this is how we tell stories when we are deep, deeply mired in conflict. Like I understand that. But at the church where it was read, there was no comment mm-hmm. offered on it. It was just read. And that's what really distressed her was like, it's one thing to read the scripture and and then offer this context as sort of we're trying to do, or as even in the CEB within the translation they're trying to do. But yeah, just just the text by itself with no with no comment is uh, problematic. It is very much so. And, you know, I think some people would not necessarily comment on this text because they assume that the text is sort of innocent or that things mm-hmm. like, you know, like uh, antagonism of Jews, persecution of Jews ha- used to happen, but it, but it doesn't anymore. And so they just don't feel it's necessary to comment on it, but it absolutely happens. And you're exactly right that the allowing of the text to go by without comment contributes to that innocently or, you know, innocently right. or not, like it still has power. We talked about this in the Bibleworm Collaborative, and the two solutions they offered were actually the two you mentioned. One is to either read the CEB or mm-hmm. just to substitute, if you read the NRSV, just to substitute Jewish leaders for 
Jews or to substitute even religious leaders, which mm-hmm. to me, the Jewishness of the leaders is actually not all that important in this text. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's religious leaders that then makes people, you know, religious leaders today, no matter what tradition we right. belong to, reflect on our own commitment and like our systems. But even if you don't want to push that far to to clarify that it's the Jewish leaders or to have a frank conversation, maybe even in the context of the sermon itself, where you say, we're about to read this and we need to we need to think about what happens when we read a text like this. Yeah. It's a complicated thing mm-hmm. to do, for sure. So, okay, we've talked about Pilate and tried to imagine what could be going on in his mind. Yeah. And then there are the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Who, who just take it to the next level, you know, of trying to denigrate this human being who is before them. Do you, do you imagine that they just kind of have no idea anything about Jesus in particular or what Pilate thinks of Jesus and this is just another, another prisoner on the moving sidewalk? Well, I guess they must know something because they dress him up as king of the Jews. Yeah. John's version of this story I think in a little more concentrated way than the stories in other gospels are really focused on Jesus being beaten and humiliated precisely mm-hmm. on this issue of being king of the Jews. Mm-hmm. To me, that, and, and it's the kingness of that that I think matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's what's happening with these soldiers is they, they know that this is the charge that's been brought against him. They think it's a ridiculous claim for him to have made, to have made, they're, you know, showing him who's actually got power here, yeah. mocking his. I mean, Jesus hasn't actually even claimed to be king of the Jews. It's been claimed no. about him. <laughs> yeah. And so they're mocking him that way. I, I also think there is just kind of, you know, when you are a soldier or really whatever position you are in and the person who writes your paycheck has taken a position about something like your inclination is to follow the position, right? You're. You're not really going to process like the humanity or inhumanity of of what you've been asked to do. You just kind of do it. Right. I think probably all of those things are at play with with the soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of of various images that we've seen in the media of people who are political prisoners or 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 just prisoners in our in our justice system and the, the way that they can be humiliated by by the, the, the soldiers, by the staff. And it makes me think about the sort of, have you heard of the category of moral injury or the idea of moral injury? I have. I could, I could probably use some refresher about what that means exactly. I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but the idea is that when you feel pressed to do something, you know, because as you're saying, your boss wants you to do it or whatever, the powers that be require you to do it in some way, that you know is wrong, you believe is wrong, it damages you. <laughs> yeah. And it and it eventually starts to sort of shut down some of your the the voices of morality within you because because you can't live in that kind of tension for so long because it's too painful. Mm. So I don't know. It's it, it. I think part of what I'm doing is because it's so painful for me to even read this story is to think like what could be happening in the minds of the people who are doing this. Yeah. It's so hard for me to believe that humans 
are this way. And yet I know that sometimes humans are this way. Yeah. You know, we were already talking about this a little bit last week when the slave of the high priest, Mm -hmm. was it last Mm -hmm. week? The slave of the high priest slapped Jesus for Mm -hmm. insubordination. And and we had this conversation, Mm -hmm. must've been two episodes ago. We had this conversation about why would somebody of a slave status be be about the business of slapping people for insubordination? And to me, that this is a recurring theme throughout this is that the the systems that are in place, yeah, I don't know exactly what the verb is. I was gonna, they don't force people. They, they, I don't know. They they result in people being cruel, yeah, in ways that the people are ultimately responsible for. Right. But it's not exactly that they're bad people. It's not exactly that they were bought into this or they thought this was a good idea. It's just there's a. Yeah, somehow they're they're on this automatic sidewalk too. Yeah. Like they're in this they're in this system and they maybe don't have the strength to stand yeah. up to it, but yeah. I think that's right. And I and I think this text is inviting us to think about that and then also to think about ourselves kind of as as part of that world and where where would we find ourselves in the conversation? Are you surprised that Pilate then brings him back out again? to the crowd to say, I just want to make sure you, you really know for real. <laughs> yeah. That I find no case against him. Well, yeah, he's it wearing surprises this like, ridiculous outfit. Yeah. Like there's a mockery, clear mockery that's going on here. In the other gospels, I think it's the case that Jesus is actually beaten at the end of the trial and then he goes from there to the crucifixion there's not this kind of going away and coming back thing you'd have Mm -hmm. to check me on that i'm pretty sure that's right but it does play an interesting role in this text because now i mean if you read Pilate's beating jesus in one of the ways that i read it which was to get a confession out of him yeah now he can say look i i did all the things that you do i tortured the guy and he still hasn't confessed to anything yeah. So it could be a way of Pilate saying he's really, really innocent and and look how pitiful he is. Like, really, y'all, you need to let him go. I think you could read it that way. I think you can also read it as Pilate simply mocking somebody for pretending to have the yeah. power of a king when they when they clearly don't, at least in human framework. What do you do yeah. with that? I just... I wonder what Pilate thinks could possibly happen. Like what what about their mind might have yeah. changed? Yeah. Or what could possibly have changed their mind? Or if it's just that he, I mean, I guess I see it as either he is, re, he really doesn't, he doesn't want to do this, but he also doesn't want to refuse to do it. So he's looking for someone to give him a pass. But I think it's curious that he is sent out in this ensemble. <laughs> yeah. In this outfit. I'm not, I, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that part of it. I can't imagine being in the crowd of people and having this person who you believe to be a danger sent out in a sort of mocking outfit. I, I, I can't even try that on. Like, how would that feel? I, I don't even, yeah. I don't know what to do with that. You know, we've talked along the way about Johannine irony, and I think this is a, a prime mm. example of it, that here you have Jesus dressed as a king, which is in fact, according to John, what he is. 
Although, whether you would use that word for it or not, I don't know, as we talked about last time. And But it is, it is this text is very much undermining the notion of what a king is, does, looks mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is, it is precisely in Jesus's being beaten and soon to be killed by the empire that his kingship is revealed, according to the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And so this image of him dressed in the purple robe with the crown of thorns, beaten up, about to be crucified, like is a crucial image for mm-hmm. what John's trying to do. Because it's reframing everything about what we think power is. Yeah. And it's exposing something really, really horrible about the way humans exercise power. So whatever's going on in Pilate's mind and the soldier's mind and the leader's mind. I think you're right. No, I think you're right. I think this is a moment, one of the moments in John where there's no way that the people in the story could really know what's, (laughs) could really, you know, kind of respond in the way that we would wish they would respond or that they could sort of see that higher level picture because they're in it. They're in the throes of it. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So finally in verse seven, the, the people who are there, the Jews who are there tell Pilate what they think Jesus's crime is. Mm -hmm. They have not done that before. They've, they've given this sort of coy answer. You know, we wouldn't have brought him here if he hadn't done something. You figure out what he did. Yeah. And they articulate the crime that he claimed to be the son of God, not the – they didn't use the word king in their, yeah. in their articulation. Yeah. Is that surprising to you based on – like we had sort of imagined before that maybe the Jewish leaders were afraid that the empire wouldn't want uh, – Someone, I, I don't know. Does it make sense to you that that that's that that's how they would describe the problem here? Now, this issue with the king is so fascinating because I don't think anybody's ever called Jesus a king, except for Pilate. Mm. That people tried to make Jesus a king back in chapter six, and he ran away. Mm-hmm. The Jewish leaders here. I mean, they're going to go on in a minute to say, like, we don't have a king. Like, we don't, we're not claiming this guy to be our king at all. So it's interesting that, like, the, the different terms that everybody's arguing about. Jesus yeah. has not claimed to be a king. He said, you say that I'm a king. Yeah. And, like, maybe I, so maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Like, what are you going to do? So the, you're right that the religious leaders have been very cagey about what exactly the charge mm-hmm. is going to be. Mm-hmm. Back in chapter 11, it was because Jesus has the power over life. Mm-hmm. To raise Lazarus from the dead, and the, how are the Romans going to respond to that? Here, it's Jesus is God's son, which is both blasphemous and also politically problematic. So it's really interesting. Like, I mean, in, in one way of thinking about it is the Gospel of John's claims about what Jesus actually is are really complicated. Right? He's yes. human. He's yeah. God. He's truth. Yeah. He's light. He's word. He's mm-hmm. kind of like a king, but not exactly like a king. Not what, right, not what you mean by king. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to like level a charge against him in this, in this kind of interesting way. Yeah. But here, I think the claim, he is God's son, they seem to be saying, he claims to be God's son, seems to be like a trump card kind of thing. Like, okay, we're just going to, this is going to really like yeah. convince you. This will get your attention. The other thing that's going on here, which I which is fascinating to me, is Pilate says, I don't see anything that he did, so you crucify him. Yeah. 
And then the leaders say, according to our law, he ought to die. With the implication being, so you go crucify him, right? Like, normally people didn't crucify people unless they were Romans. Yeah. So Pilate's giving them permission to use crucifixion, and then they're coming right back and saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. Yeah. It's more passing the buck. Yeah. I don't feel like I really said anything there that was, like, very conclusive. No, I don't. I just... It's an infuriating story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we should we go on to the next section? Let's do it. It'll continue to infuriate us, and then we can okay, reflect great. about it at and the end. And then we can mm-hmm. take a Xanax. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Tom Harris, and I'm the pastor of Govins Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm a Bible Worm supporter at the virtual worm level. Every week I get to begin my sermon preparation by listening to the Bible Worm episode for the upcoming text. I choose to listen to Bible Worm because the text-based interfaith dialogue between Bobby and Amy is so unique. I preach to a highly educated congregation who come to the text with diverse theological perspectives. So Bobby's and Amy's interfaith dialogue is a great primer. I also appreciate their passion for social justice and reading the text in light of contemporary social concerns. As a virtual worm supporter, I get to join Bobby and Amy and other pastors around the country for a monthly Zoom Bible study of upcoming texts before the episodes are recorded. This allows Amy and Bobby to be more in tune with some of the questions their listeners bring to the passage in their particular contexts. So I hope you'll consider becoming a supporter of Bible Worm. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. So thanks for listening. And now back to this week's podcast. Picking up in verse eight. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. I don't think this was the desired effect when the Jews told Pilate he was the son of God. (laughs) No. Yeah, Pilate has kind of a surprising response here. Yeah. How do you read that he was more afraid than ever? I don't really know. I don't really know how to start digging into that. What, What do you think is happening? I guess, okay, this was my first thought. This might be a deeply wrong-headed one, but this was my first thought. That Pilate already didn't really want to be involved in this. Yeah. And now he's like, oh, crap. Like, yeah. I for <laughs> real, I don't want to touch this bad yeah. boy with a 10-foot pole. Like, I want nothing to do with this. Yeah. But as the leader, he can't. He can't quite just extra, he can't, you know, like he can't just say, I'm out, <laughs> you know, like he has to do one thing or the other. And 
Yeah. I think Pilate's really feeling the both I am the authority and I should have the power here, you know, as he as yeah. he basically says to Jesus, and also getting this sort of sinking feeling in his gut that maybe he is not the one who has the power. Yeah. I think that's right. You know, and in the Bible Room Collaborative, we were talking a little bit about this and people were saying, you know, like in the, in the Roman world, there actually, it was entirely possible to be living your life and then a, a demigod or a son of a god or, you know, somebody who has mm. other than purely human status could really show up. Oh, that's an important thing to know. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, in the context of, you know, the Roman world, like the claim that like I'm actually a divine being, if, you know, if you think about, you know, mm. the, the Odyssey or, or these places where, you know, Achilles, people who are part human and part part God and doing, doing things, you know, um, this is, at least in theory, a belief that one could have had. And I, I think you're exactly right. Like Pilate, is into something that he doesn't want to be into that Mm-mm. Auntie has been upped. He yes. thinks I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with a divine being. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's not sure who has the power in this situation. Yeah. Right. Because one would assume if you get involved in executing a divine being, there are going to be some consequences. Yeah. To that. Which is in fact, exactly what is happening. According to John. Wait, say more about that. I mean, Jesus is a divine being, according to John. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yes. And then they get into this conversation sort of about consequences, maybe, sort of. I mean, Pilate tries to kind of intimidate Jesus into answering the question. And surprise, surprise, that is not successful. But then Jesus says this funny thing. You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Yeah. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Yeah. How do you understand? How do you understand that? I mean, there's several things that are going on in there. One is Pilate has said, "Don't you know I have authority to release you and and to crucify you?" Mm-hmm. Which is Pilate claiming to have power over life and death. Yes. Which in one sense he does have, right? He, he actually can execute yes. Jesus. Yes. He actually can give Jesus his Yes, give him in his the life earthly back. sense, he is correct. Mm-hmm. The story, you know, as a whole is going to show us that, in fact, Pilate has no power over life and death, that God has the power of giving life, like creating life and also of resurrecting, and that death, in fact, has no power. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this sort of conflict of... Like, who, who actually has the power over life and death? Jesus is not really entering into that conversation exactly, but it's clearly implied. I mean, those of us who've been reading the gospel know that, in fact, nothing in the world came into being except through him. We, we know that since the prologue. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is that authority. This thing that you're saying, that you're pointing to, you wouldn't have any authority. Like you don't have any authority because mm-hmm. all authority rests in God and, in, mm-hmm. and therefore in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the only way anyone has any authority is because it's given to them from above. That from above, by the way, is the same from above that is used in John 3 with the story of Nicodemus when he says you have to be born again from above. Mm. So it's something about on, on a spiritual plane or given to you by the power of, of God or something like that. So 
you know, that this is a theme in the, in the biblical text all the way through, and it's a troublesome one for me, where all authorities have authority because God has given them that authority. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to say that if you believe God is powerful. Mm-hmm. And yet you run into all sorts of problems. Right. Does that mean that God sanctions whatever right. the leader is doing? That would be a problem. <laughs> that would be a problem. you have any thoughts about that? I am... S- my mind is stuck on the connection between the two parts of this okay. verse. So, so maybe I will have thoughts about it after we okay. talk about the second part of the verse. Okay. Because I feel like with the, with the first part of the verse and the second part, if you read just the first part of the verse, then I totally read it as what you're saying. That yeah. like you wouldn't have any power if God didn't, God didn't give you power, so you can just chill. Yeah. But then the second part of the verse Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. They're yeah. talking about Judas? I, th- I think that's the clearest reading. Are there other ones you want to put out there? Yeah. Judas is referred elsewhere in the Gospel of John as the one who handed Jesus over. So I think that's the most obvious connection. Uh, there are other people who are involved in handing Jesus over here. Sure. You know, Jesus has been now through Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to the people, you know, so mm-hmm. like I th- it is possible, I think, to implicate multiple groups of people in this claim about handing Jesus over. I think the simplest way to read it is to say that it's about Judas. Yes, and I appreciate that that broadening of it also. And then uh, uh, but it's the the subject matter sort of changes here. Like it sort of is like if this power was given to you from above and you're just doing what you have to do, I feel like it almost takes the responsibility of this off of Pilate. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand how you could say that authority was given to you from above, and so you didn't really mean to be in this position, and so you're not responsible for what happens. But the people who turned you over, who— I mean, it seems like sort of narratively, this is a way to say, like, Pilate sort of is not going to be held responsible for this. This is going to be placed squarely at the feet of Judas or the Jewish leadership or something like that. Is that is that how you read this narratively, like what it seems like it's trying to do? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, Amy, about, I mean, ultimately, who is responsible for what has what is transpiring with Jesus. Yeah. Because, you know, even if you push it back to Judas, then the first thing that pops into my head is the very beginning of John 13, where it says Satan had put it in Judas's heart. Mm-hmm. So th- we talked a little bit there about maybe that text is actually trying to exonerate Judas in a sense and, and say it's actually the power of the deceiver in the world. Yeah. So then you end up in this sort of interesting place where all sorts of people's actions lead to Jesus's death, but yeah. the text seems to be a little shaky about whether any of them is exactly responsible or not. And I kept thinking back. So first, as I was thinking through this, I went back to my sort of original, you know, Jesus has said throughout, like, this is this is God's plan and this is going to happen and there's nothing you can do to prevent this from happening. Yeah. Like, it has to go down this way. Yeah. 
And so when I think about it that way, then I'm like, well, nobody really can be totally held responsible then because this is sort of the plan. But I was thinking back to a comment you made a couple weeks ago about how it's not, you, you were saying like, it's not like a plan per se, so much as a, this is the way the world works and we know that this is what's going to happen. Yeah. I think I feel some real, I feel some tension between trying to say Pilate's not responsible, but Judas is, or the Jewish religious leaders are, or it it seems like they're all sort of implicated. Yeah. You read this as exonerating Pilate a little more than I do. Okay. Because he doesn't say you don't have any sin. He says the one yeah. who handed me over has a greater sin. Yeah. And so, like, to me, that is not saying Pilate is innocent. It's just saying Pilate is less guilty <laughs> um, yeah. in, on a sort of spectrum of guiltiness. Yeah. Which maybe is kind of not entirely different, but, you know, the way that I'm reading this right now is Judas has been with Jesus as his disciple. He knows him intimately, knows where he goes with his disciples, betrays him intentionally, knowing what he knows. And so when I think when it says, when Jesus says, you ha- uh, the one who handed me over has the greater sin, that's what he means. Judas mm-hmm. knew what he was doing and he did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Pilate, it's a, it's a little more the sense of human structures are inherently flawed and you're caught up in a human structure. And this is the way, like, it's still a cruel system. And the way that it works is a terrible way that it works. And I'm exposing to the world mm-hmm. how cruel the system is. And yet the, the worst thing still is knowing what you're doing and doing it anyway. I don't know. Even as I'm saying it out loud, I'm not entirely convinced that either that I'm right or that I that makes me satisfied. No, I mean, I, I hear you. It really is, you know, on the one hand, you could say Pilate is, Pilate just happens to be in this job. Like this wasn't, you know, Pilate didn't ask for this mess to show up on his doorstep one day. And also that's, you know, all it takes for evil to prevail is for good people that's to exactly not. Right. Yeah not do what they know is right with yeah. whatever power they have. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there are gradations of 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 guilt associated with it, but it just, it is honestly hard for me at this point in the story to point my finger at any yeah. particular person or even group and say, this is why, this is why it happened. There were failings yeah. all across the board, all over the map. Yeah. Everybody failed. Yeah, Amy, I think, honestly, I think that's the most helpful reading to me. I I think that's exactly right. What exactly you do with this sort of the most guilt is reserved for this one, I'm not sure. But I think your bigger point of everybody is trying to navigate this situation. We've tried to talk about the various sort of things that are at stake for people and the various ways in which the system is working and that people are just kind of doing the thing that they think is best. And in fact, what they're doing is really awful. Mm -hmm. And when you read it that way and you say, all of those folks have responsibility, have guilt in the system, then it comes pretty quickly back to you and me and all of us 
who also go along with these systems yeah. that do terrible things all the time. And we're not exactly guilty in the way that Judas is guilty, you know, sort of in most of us anyway, right. sort of intentionally doing things that harm people. And yet we're still caught up in this thing that is the system right. is being judged. And we're the being system judged is being judged. And all of us have some power to stop yeah. it. Different amounts of power, but yeah. all of us have some power. And uh, and most of us, most of the time, are not using it. Yeah. That was it is interesting <laughs> here that Jesus is not, Jesus is not giving Pilate an out. But nor is Jesus trying to trip up Pilate and make him do something he wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, Jesus' sort of reticence about engaging in the conversation at all is a way of just letting Pilate be Pilate. And then we can say at the end, when Pilate is Pilate, when Rome is Rome, yeah. when religious authorities are religious authorities, when I am me and you are you, look right. at the kinds of things that happen. Right. Okay, I have one more question about this part. When Pilate at the end, Pilate tries to release him and the Jews say, yeah. if you release him, you're no friend of the emperor. Everyone yeah. who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Yeah. What? I guess my question is, back a couple chapters, I believed wholeheartedly the religious authorities when they said, this is going to be a danger to us, to our people. Yeah. And we talked about how it would be a danger because, in part, because the Roman authorities would not like this, and then the Roman authorities would attack the Jewish people and yeah. blah, blah, blah. So now that their local authority yes. seems like he's not going to, are we to believe, or do you believe as a reader, that they really think this or that they just have gotten themselves so amped up they can't let go. And so they're like, you know, you just keep fighting for what you're fighting for and raise the ante as high as you have to, whether you believe it or not. Yeah. Or that it was never true in the first place for their rationale or. I really love this moment in the Gospel of John because I think it reveals something that's really true about the way the world works. And that is the sort of our tendency is to function with this kind of binary between like there's there's the Romans and there's the Jews and like mm -hmm. all Romans are Romans and all Jews are Jews and there it is. And what we're seeing here is that in fact there's sort of gradations all along the way. If you, if you want to think about it in terms of post-colonial theory, you know, you would talk about something like the the Romans in Rome who sort of have the official power on the one end of the spectrum and then the people in Judea, the Jewish people, who are occupied by the Roman occupiers, mm -hmm. who are sort of on the other end of the power spectrum. And then in the middle, you've got these two kind of interesting hybrid spaces. One is Pilate, who is a Roman elite, but not in Rome. He's a Roman elite whose power, in some ways, depends on keeping the peace where he is, or he's going to get yanked. Right. And then you've got the Jewish leaders here who, you know, I guess we would call the indigenous elite or something like that. They're not exactly the same as the Jewish people who are just average people on the street. Yeah. They have an investment in the system that is different, both in terms of trying to protect their heritage and also trying to keep Rome happy and also to an extent trying to preserve their own power. And so they're not ex like, 
So this is a fascinating moment when what they end up doing is going over Pilate's head mm-hmm. to say, we're the actually the really loyal ones. You are a traitor against Caesar. And they're, threat- they're using the tenuousness of Pilate's position to threaten him with a greater authority of which he is even more afraid. Right. In order to protect the people, presumably, like that's mm-hmm. the best reading is, mm-hmm. they really think Caesar's going to be upset about this. And so they're trying to protect them by manipulating Pilate however they have to. Yeah. But the complex, the complexities of human it's, power. It, yes. I mean, you just start tracing. I love the way that you just sort of traced this like web between all these different like gravitational forces that are pulling them one way or another. And yeah. it's, it's, it is fragile the way yeah. that all these things interact with each other. And that creates a lot of fear about what will happen if, if there's big movement one way or the other. And it also traps us in, you know, whatever fragile, fragile stability we may feel at a particular moment. Yeah, if if our whole goal becomes just to stay right there. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to read the last couple of verses. Picking up in verse 13. When Pilate heard those words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. I'm a little curious about how... You know, when when Pilate brings Jesus outside and says to the community who's gathered there, says to the Jews, here is your king. Do you think he's trying to egg them on? <laughs> like I keep going back and forth between, I have, I have a lot of trouble understanding what Pilate is doing. Sometimes yeah. he seems sincere and human, and sometimes he seems to just slip into these power games. This seems like a power game. Or maybe he's just really not good at dissuading them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pilate is an enigma to me in, in this text, for sure. Because, I mean, they have just gotten finished saying anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes the emperor. Yeah. So they're saying he's not our king. And then Pilate says, Pilate says, here's your king. And they're like, that's not our king. Right. The The way that I know to read that is... The one reason that Pilate would crucify Jesus is because he's a traitor to Rome. And that hinges on Jesus having claimed to be a king, mm-hmm. which he has never done. Mm-hmm. 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 And so Pilate keeps using this word to say, here's the reason I'm executing him. He's your king. And then the leaders keep saying, but he's not our king, but he needs to be crucified. And right. so you you get this kind of complicated moment where... This is the way that Pilate has to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to, I think he's trying to clarify for them that he's doing a thing he doesn't want to do. And he, by, by needling them, 
And we're going to see next time when he, when he crucifies Jesus, he's going to put a plaque over his head that says King of the Jews. Yeah. And, you know, that's the charge. And I think Pilate is saying, I don't think it's a genuine charge, but I'm going to do it because I don't want to, like, I feel threatened by you going over my head to the emperor. I'm not yeah. comfortable in my power, so I'm going to do it. So th- then you end up with this really interesting situation in which Jesus is going to get crucified for a charge that no one has ever agreed about and no one has really taken responsibility for. Right. Although here Pilate does sit on the judgment seat, which I, which I think is like maybe this is like ruling from the bench in our yeah. terminology. What do you do with all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're— I think your explanation of it is really helpful that the reason that Pilate is really hammering on this king idea is because that's 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 like the legal charge, right? This is <laughs> this is the code he's being brought up on even though the the community that brought him there is saying no it's you know he's not our king. I keep have you ever heard of the the road to Abilene? a story. I've, I, I don't know anything about it. It's a, a it, it was a story that someone told me in the context of congregational life, like making community decisions and like board mm. decisions and whatnot. And I don't think it's exactly what's happening here, but it keeps popping into my head. So I'll just say it. This idea that sometimes decisions are made that no individual person really wants, but it's like, no one wants to quite speak against it, and it seems like maybe it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so it just happens, even though even though no person really would have advocated for that thing. It's not exactly what's happening here, because I think there are some religious leaders in this story who would say, like, no, he, yeah, he does need to be crucified. Although, as you said, on what charge is... Mm-hmm. It's not clear. I think it's just another thought about the sort of moving sidewalk that we've been talking about. Like once, once, once you're on that sidewalk, it's it's really hard to get off. I, I really like that comparison, Amy. I think I think that's really helpful. And you know, I was thinking about the only real insight we have into why do they actually think Jesus should be crucified is all the way back in chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and they said, if the Romans find out he can raise people from the dead, then the Romans are going to come and destroy us. Yeah. But, but they can't say that. But why can't they say that? Well, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> no, like, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a reason, but like, why won't people just say just say the thing and see what happens. But everyone's trying to like figure out what the other person needs to hear in order to, you know, bring about the end that they think needs to happen for some other reason. And I mean, I wonder what, what would Pilate have said if he, if they said, well, he can raise people from the dead. I guess that's probably not on the Roman books as a charge. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, this is probably an over, overly theologized reading or politicized reading. I don't, I don't know what you'll think about it. One way of reading that is, I mean, what, the, what they say in chapter 11, as I recall, is if he can raise people from the dead, then the people are going to flock to him. And then the Romans are going to be upset mm-hmm. about his popular power and they're going to come mm-hmm. destroy us to, get put, mm-hmm. to you know, put down this uprising. 
which is entirely actually reasonable that, that that might happen. Yeah. Beyond that, you know, the power that the Roman Empire has, the power that all empires have, is this illusion which Pilate has said in this text, that they have power over life and death. We can give you life. Mm-hmm. We can give you death. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty much what Pilate just said. That's exactly what Pilate right? just said. I can let you mm-hmm. go or I can kill you right now. Yeah. And the threat of death is the is the thing that actually really matters for empires, right? It's like, we'll try to get you to do what we want you to do in all these other ways, but if we can't get you to do what we want you to do, look, at the end of the day, it's we're the just gonna, final trump card. We're going to yeah. wield death against you. And so, like, this is the real threat that Jesus poses, and it is a threat that would undo the empire. Yeah. And maybe it's just too much to say. Yeah. Or maybe it, like, I mean, just the irony of saying, like, we need to kill this guy because he has the power over, he has power to give life instead of death. Like, if, if you put it in that stark of a term, yeah. human empires cannot handle Someone who has the power over life, they're going to kill him. God, it's so depressing. Yeah. Yeah. That our power but, systems are, are built but on so that. But so true. Mm-hmm. It's so true. Our power systems are built on this like economy of death. And I think, yeah. you know, one way of reading it, although, I mean, we're, I have drifted a little bit from probably the plain sense of the text here, but you just can't say that. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just walk into a legal proceeding and say, our society is built on the power of death. (laughs) And this guy has the power of life, so we got to kill him. Yeah. You just can't say that. Like, I feel a little uncomfortable (laughs) saying that on the the podcast, you know? It threatens to undo a lot of things if you actually acknowledge that that is the way that we work. Yeah. And so no one wants to say it. It's too big. Is there anything else you want to say about this little section? The only other thing that I would say, and it's not in, at all obviously related to anything we've been talking about, is that John reminds us that it was noon on the preparation day for Passover mm. in verse 14. Yeah. There's a whole argument about exactly what does John mean by that. One line of thinking says that Passover lambs were slaughtered at noon on the day of preparation. And then Jesus sort of meets his death. He is, he is slaughtered at the same time as the Passover lambs are slaughtered. Other people think that that might be a little overly precise. Like the evidence for exactly noon is a little sparse. But I do think that the mention here again of preparation day, even if we let aside the noon, preparation day I think is urgently important about yeah. what's happening with Jesus. And you know, we talk, we've talked along the way about here, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in some way or another, I think Jesus here is being compared to the Passover Lamb. And when you think about that, then, I don't know, the Passover Lamb's blood marks the door, prevents the power of death. Like it warns the, it tells the power of death not to mess with these people because they've their threshold has been covered with blood. And so, I mean, that little simple line sort of flags, I think, what John is trying to do with Jesus's crucifixion, which is to say Jesus's blood is the thing that mm-hmm. protects people from death over and against the power of the empire, I suppose, which, which wields death as a weapon. I really, really like that, Bobby. And I, you know, I had thought 
before of this idea of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb, as, you know, taking away the sin of the world, right? Which is another line mm-hmm. that that we have heard. And, you know, just coming at it from a, you know, purely like Hebrew Bible sacrifice ritual context, that's not really what the Paschal lamb does. Like <laughs> the Paschal yeah, lamb doesn't right. take away anybody's sin. Like that's yeah. not what a Paschal lamb is. But I think especially in the context of this conversation about the force of death and the force of life in the world, that that image of Jesus' blood as protective is really rich and resonant. Yeah. And, you know, John is not overly precise about what he means ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so we might think that there are different ways of thinking about Jesus as a lamb and what that has to do with anything and they, there might be more than one of those kind of at play at the same time. But I think that Paschal Lamb conversation needs to certainly be in the mix. Yeah. The other thing we talked about, who takes away the sin of the world, we talked about way, way back that the sin there is singular. It's not takes yeah. away the sins of the world, but mm-hmm. the sin of the world, which we talked about way, way back as meaning something like the brokenness of, you know, the cosmos, the human world. And I think we've sort of amplified that. In some way, Jesus' death is exposing and now covering over or giving an alternative to the brokenness of, of human society. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. And he still hasn't been crucified. <laughs> That's for another week. We still have three more episodes to go before Easter, I think. Oh, good gracious. Okay. <laughs> The third one is Easter, so we got two more crucifixion ones, and then and then Easter. Yeah. Okay, so Bobby, we've reached the end of our reading. What's rising to the top for you? I mean, I kind of feel like this week we have been a little bit gesturing toward what are the connections between this text and what's going on today, like a little bit all along the way. And so I, you know. This idea that what is happening here in the way John tells Jesus's trial leading to his crucifixion is revealing the brokenness of human power structures that wield death and are afraid of life. And that we, every one of us who are human beings, are caught up in that system, whether we want to be or not. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the point of this text is it is it is exposing the way the world works it is saying Pilate is terrible here and the religious leaders are terrible here and you and i are terrible here because we go along with things we trump up charges we can't say what we really think we side with death instead of life and for me what that means is this text is an invitation first of all to self-examination of me in my community to say, in what ways do we participate in all of these kinds of things Mm -hmm. in the cruelty of the system? The good news that's coming in this text is that Jesus's death is going to give us an alternative, which is to say we can be on the side of life instead of the side of death. But this text that ends right here in 16a doesn't want us to think about the good news yet. It wants us to wait until Easter to think about the good news. It wants us to spend a minute or a couple of weeks just really reflecting on the brokenness of the world 
and the ways in which we contribute and participate in the very same things that Pilate and the religious leaders in this text are, are doing. Yeah. It's not a very uplifting message, but I think it's an important I mean, one. it's not, but but I think that's I think you're exactly right that that I think it it would be tempting especially for people who do, you know, who don't stop watching the movie in the middle like yeah. <laughs> like Phoebe. We know where this is going and to want to be able to offer that hope right now, but that's not we're not there yet yeah. in the text. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you go when you read this text? You know, we are right now in the Jewish community, we're reading Leviticus, mm. which is, uh, I know this will be shocking to you, not the most beloved book of most uh, most Jews. They sort of, you know, tolerate that we're supposed to study this book every year, but it's 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 messy and it's kind of gross and it's, you know, dealing with all these systems we don't use anymore and... It's, it's really difficult to find real points of connection and relevance to us. And, but I had two thoughts as you were talking that, that took me back into Leviticus. One of them, and I think we've talked about this idea generally before, but is this, it's, in some ways it's a very practical book. It's like, look, life is messy. Human beings are a disaster, so there are going to have to be systems in place to deal with that and clear the air. There are going to have to be some ground rules. There are going to have to be things we do when things go wrong. You know, the things they they do at that time don't work for most of us right now. But I think that general truth is, is really real. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've always thought it was, uh, I don't know what adjective to use, really powerful to read the story of Jesus's life and death, knowing the role that the sacrificial system played yeah. within the the Israelite world. The other thing that really comes to my mind is several places within the book of Leviticus, you know, that the priests are really sort of rising to power in that book. They have a really important role. And it's very easy for me as a modern person to read the text and say, like, they have too much power. Look at all the ways the system reinforces their power. Like last year, we read the book of Leviticus vis-a-vis the book Cast. And like, we're talking about the caste system that's sort of established Mm -hmm. and maintained within that book. All of those critiques, I think, are really, really valid. And I also see moments in the text where there's this acknowledgement that like, it is hard to be the leader. Yeah. And when the leader messes up, it has huge consequences for the community. And you know, I see that in the the religious authorities here. I see that in Pilate who like yeah. at the end of the day, Pilate, you actually can't worm out of this. You have to do one thing or the other. And I am thankful that I that I'm not in that that kind of role. I, I mean, I, yeah, I do. As, as much as he drives me insane here, I also feel some, some empathy for just how much, and now it's shocking, just how <laughs> much pressure is on our leaders and how much, yeah. and it's real. It's not manufactured. Like, it's real. Yeah. We, need, we need everyone to do the right thing, and all the more so we need leaders to have the courage to do the right thing and— and that, that is not how this story goes. Yeah. 
I appreciate you so much, Amy. I say this all the time, the way that you try to empathize with the characters in the text that nobody <laughs> wants to empathize with. But it's really true in this text that everybody is afraid of something. Everybody's but it's not clear that anybody needs to be afraid of anything. So, you know, all these things like, oh, the emperor's going to be mad, like that gets invoked. And, you know, maybe everybody should be afraid. But the reality is everybody's nervous about mm-hmm. things that nobody actually knows right. if they're true or not. Right. And, and, so, and so, so with us as well. I appreciate you're having some empathy for the leaders in this story, which opens a space to have some empathy for ourselves as well, which is also important. Uh, next week is we're, we're reading the Palm Sunday text. Yeah. Well, it's interesting and it is Palm Sunday next week, but the narrative lectionary has us continue on with the crucifixion of Jesus in the very next half verse, 1916 B. So we're going to do that 1916 B to 22. And then we might mix in a little bit of the Palm. I don't, I don't know if you can have Palm Sunday without the Palm Sunday text, but (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure you um, can. We'll see what we're going to do. We're at least going to continue on in 19, though. Yeah. Sounds good. Our slow and torturous march. Yeah. It'd be <laughs> kind of nice to go wave some palms, wouldn't it? Instead of, it would. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice and breezy. All right, Bobby. Thanks for a great conversation and a tough text. I will yeah. see you again next time. All right. See you next week. Thanks, Amy. Bye. For joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. Special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Jay Robinson and Jennifer Davis Sensenig. Join us again next time as we continue in John chapter 19, reading verses 16b through 22, plus a few verses from John chapter 12 in honor of Palm Sunday. Until then, keep on digging.